Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. And so you have, you have this big scalable channel that's highly targetable, that reaches the entire addressable market, that's measurable. Now, all of a sudden, you know we're in business. What was missing was a technology layer to actually make the executional work you know, possible, at least in the framework with which we had come to expect because of programmatic digital channels. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. My new book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is now live on Amazon Kindle, on paperback, as well as hardcover. So to tell you about the book and to give you a little context, in a world of noise, competition, and skepticism, you've probably found that spamming your prospects with undifferentiated pitches, case studies, and sales collateral is a lot like yelling at a brick wall. And on the other hand, trying to go old school and completely personalize every touchpoint 100% is unrealistic and unsustainable because the few people you manage to contact might not even notice or care. And when life gets busy, your sales activity and your team's activity tends to grind to a halt. Your pipeline runs dry and stagnation, feast and famine, all these bad things, they can all happen. So what if the answer is actually combining the new school with the old? And instead of going in cold, how much faster could you grow if you could identify and open doors with the prospects who live within your circles of influence and are already primed to trust and do business with you? So this book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is the new selling philosophy for our age. Bold statement, right? But it is because it marries the timeless power of tribe-based trust with digitally enabled scale so you can open doors tastefully and convert prospects consistently, all without spamming anyone. So it's written by me, Dan Englander. I'm the CEO and founder of this company, Sales Schema, and the book's stories, strategies, and hands-on resources are grounded in thousands of outreach campaigns conducted for clients since 2014. That's among almost 90 clients to secure opportunities between our clients and hard-to-reach prospects, including the leaders of the largest companies on earth. A few things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to balance personalization and scale to keep your pipeline full and achieve reliable and predictable growth. You're going to learn how to condense five years of networking into a single week-long campaign so you can batch up warm referrals into specific ideal accounts. You're going to learn how to de-risk conversations. That's the, the emphasis for this with highly skeptical prospects by leveraging strong personal commonalities instead of boring publicly available information like, hey, I saw you tweeted about this thing last week. That doesn't work. And you're going to be able to leverage dozens of actual copy examples, campaign strategies, and online resources so you can launch and close deals in a matter of weeks. So Relationship Sales to Scale will reshape the way you think about sales and business development, whether you are an owner, a dedicated salesperson, or in any growth-focused role. This book is a fit for the owners and salespeople in professional service companies and other B2B service and or software areas, assuming you're going after high lifetime value. So this is not for small and medium-sized businesses. So with that said, if you would like to learn more and pick up the book on Kindle or paperback or hardcover, and eventually we'll have it out in audio before too long, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash rsas. Again, that's saleschema.com slash rsas. So today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Dave Fink, who is the CEO and co-founder at Posty. 
Posty is a data and tech platform with the mission of making direct mail behave as dynamically as the best digital quant marketing channels. According to the main headline on their site, you are able to run powerful direct mail campaigns just like you run digital ads with the push of a button. But Dave's story goes a whole lot deeper than Posty. Uh, we talked about his background working at a startup studio called Science in LA, where he was an early stage partner with Dollar Shave Club, and what it felt like to go on that wild ride back uh, in 2011, which you know ended or or re- at least reached you know some sort of conclusion with a billion dollar exit when they sold to Unilever. We talked about the value and the meaning of building a mission-driven business. And we talked a lot about the concept of virality, what it meant, you know, 10 plus years ago, what it means now, and what it could mean for for you and your clients. So I really enjoy talking to Dave. I think you're going to learn a lot from his perspective. Uh, so without further ado, please give it up for Dave Fink. Dave, nice to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, you're you're in the direct mail space now, but you have a really interesting background. I was, I'm, I was very excited for this interview. Um, but for those that don't know you, would you mind kind of giving high level high level background on kind of where you're coming at this from? Yeah, sure. And, I, and I'll start by saying yes. The the media channel that that my company and I are, are fully you know immersed in right now is direct mail. But really, we're a technology company. Everything we we focus on and think about are how do we leverage all the technologies in addressable, you know, marketing, programmatic marketing, quant marketing that have made us all smarter, you know, more predictive, more process oriented, and, and hopefully more effective. How do we bring you know, that into a more analog channel like direct mail to open up another monster channel in a world where social and and search are dominated by two behemoths that don't always make our lives easy. Yeah. So you, know, I, the reason I, I I mention that is because I think that that'll that lines up a little bit more with kind of my background trajectory. So spent almost twenty five years at this point in in the consumer internet space. It's where I, for all practical purposes, started my my career back in uh, about nineteen ninety nine. And I just always was fascinated with kind of with the idea of kind of building emerging you know technology and companies. So the idea of how do you take an idea and how do you you know bring it into the world and add value and generate scale. And I did that had the opportunity to kind of bounce back and forth between building direct consumer brands that relied very heavily on on obviously technology and their commerce stack, but also in how they drive awareness growth, retention, et cetera, you know, digital channels. And then you know, got fixated on all these channels and then spent other times of my career building out marketing technology platforms that you know, were enablement tools, always in digital channels. So this is the first time that, that I've you know, ventured outside of digital. But that kind of experience, understanding that channels come and go, especially in emerging spaces like digital, but the 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 knowledge and way we kind of operate tends to constantly be up and to the right. It's similar to like markets. Everybody's talking about the economy right now and, and you kind of channels will like oscillate, but the knowledge is always up and to the right. And so where I sit right now after, you know, again, almost almost 25 years of, of doing this is, is realizing that it's really about you know, storytelling and brand development and quality products and services and understanding your customers and who your prospect customers are and thinking about ways to um, kind of share that brand story, um, you know, all the benefits that um, your business provides 
you know, in any number of media contexts, but to do it in a controlled and measurable way. Yeah, that that's really interesting. And so, and that makes sense that the, you kind of keep building on the knowledge and there'd be like lessons that you could apply to to any channel. I think it's really, uh, really interesting that you've sort of built the business around one particular channel that is not, not a new one. It's maybe the oldest one, right? Since like the Pony Express or whatever. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like what inspired you to build a business around direct mail? Sure. It, it didn't start. The idea didn't start with let's you know, go figure out how to tackle direct mail. The idea was really mission driven around the pain that that we were feeling with with Facebook, quite frankly. So like so many brands, you know, we fell in love with the sophistication, with the reach, with the capabilities that that channel gave us to to run quantitative marketing in a really big environment, right? I mean, Facebook became ubiquitous for the internet. And starting about about six years ago, you know, the CMOs and the the VP of growth and the customer acquisition teams and even CRM teams that we were engaging with were really nervous and feeling a lot of pain. And that was because at that point, there, there were kind of like two, I think, oh crap moments that happened in, in Facebook. The first was when, you know, the early days, it was all about buying likes and building, you know, fan pages and Facebook gave us all the tools to, to invest in building our communities and really their community. And then, you know, we all remember that that day where they said, guess what? We're rolling out an algorithm and now you're not naturally going to be able to reach all these people that you just spent millions of dollars to build a community around. We're going to charge you to reach those customers. And for them and their market cap, that was a brilliant idea. For advertisers, it, it felt kind of crummy. And to be quite honest, in some ways for consumers, you know, it has now proven to be a fairly manipulative way to determine what content, you know, I as a consumer, you as a, a, a you know, consumer user of the platform receives. But from a marketing perspective, it created a lot more pain, a lot more expense. It had to, you know, it was a moment where we're like, wow, this platform has a lot of power over us. Second pain point came along about, this one was the one I was referencing um, about six years ago, where, you know, they kind of hit their ceiling with user growth. So the supply side of, of their business was was fairly maxed out. And they, the, the entire world, you know, was fighting to figure out how to move ad dollars away from traditional channels into Facebook and then Instagram. And so, you know, if supply stays consistent and demand, you know, increases in some cases exponentially, we all know, all know basic economics and ad rates went up and conversion rates went down. The quality customer sourced um, on the channel had a lower expectant lifetime value, like, and the math just doesn't work. And so you, you end up with this conundrum, which is, you know, hey, do I increase my allowable return on ad spend and keep taking advantage of, of the potential growth? Or do I get more disciplined and, and say, hey, my allowable is my allowable. I need to run a profitable customer acquisition strategy, in which case, you know, the amount of budget that you can put to work in, in that channel, in this case, you know, social through Facebook and Instagram comes down greatly. Neither one of those are great answers. And so for us, it was okay. Like we got to go find other big, powerful channels that can be just as effective that we can run, you know, take the applied knowledge that we've, we've built over, you know, over the, the past years and, and find more ways to grow our business. And, and so we spent a lot of time looking at other digital channels. And at that point, if you think six years ago, you know, there was no TikTok, didn't exist in its, in its current form. You know, Snap existed, but didn't have an ads platform or a real ads platform. There just wasn't, you know, another big programmatic way to reach consumers. 
And so then we start spending more time offline. And in offline, there are a lot of amazing channels. TV is great, of course, and can be effective, but it's not programmatic. At least linear TV is not. And it wasn't back then. And you know, out of home is great, but not targeted the way that you know, digital channels are. But we we started, you know, really thinking about the the qualities of direct mail. And in direct mail, it's monstrous in reach. Your entire addressable market, market reachable through direct mail. There's a lot of quality data and ways to use your first party data and third party data for insights and targeting and optimization. And for many brands that are capturing data uh, at transaction or the conversion point around their customers, there's direct measurement. And so you have you have this big scalable channel that's highly targetable that reaches the entire addressable market that's measurable. Now all of a sudden, you know, we're in business. What was missing was a technology layer to actually make the executional work, you know, possible, at least in the framework with which we had come to expect because of programmatic digital channels. So that that's the the real path of how we got here. And it, it was just really an authentic, organic, you know, mission-driven you know, need that that we and lots of marketers had. Yeah. And that, that seems like a, a healthier way to go about something like that than, than just like a shiny object of how about this channel, right? So that makes a lot of sense to me. And circling back to, to your background a little bit and talking about, you know, applied knowledge and everything. Can you talk about Dollar Shave Club and, you know, how you got acquainted with them and what you learned from them and that journey a little bit? As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Sure. That was a fascinating... I mean, it's crazy to think about. It was like four to five years that that, that whole kind of Dollar Shave Club story you know, took place over, at that time, what felt like really long days and long weeks and, and long quarters. But in, in the reality, it was it, it happened. It was, the, it was kind of the, the dream scenario. So um, my involvement with, with Dollar Shave Club was I was one of the, the founding partners of a tech studio in Santa Monica called Science. And we invested in a range of direct-to-consumer brands, marketplace, two-sided marketplaces, marketing technology platforms, and we had this kind of really kind of unique seat at the table where we, we had a portfolio of you know dozens and dozens of early stage startups. And Dollar Shave Club was one of the businesses that we were fortunate enough to be able to invest and help launch. At the time, you know, Mike Dubin, who is the face of the brand, the brains of the brand, you know, it was, it was you know his inve- invention, and he he was the CEO. Lots of people don't realize that. Charming, funny, creative guy on, on the videos is actually the the person that created and, and ran the company. He showed up with an idea of selling razors directly through the internet. He had a 
very nascent, you know, pipeline supply chain, but access to some product. And at that point, a rough cut of, of what was the video that kind of really was an overnight sensation. For me, it was a, a tremendous turning point in my career um, and kind of understanding of marketing. Up till that point, I'd been so fixated on the pure quantitative test and optimization, direct response components, right? Things like what font sizes drives, you know, conversion and what button colors helps, you know, consumer, you know, fire, you have more dopamine. So they're more likely to, to feel the need to engage with your landing page or your email creative or your ad. And those, those components are fun. And I, I'm a big proponent of psychology and behavioral economics. But what my experience with Dollar Shave Club taught me is that, you know, storytelling, brand building, especially in the rising era of, you know, social distribution, completely changes the scale of where you're playing. So while you may be able to optimize a direct-to-consumer razor brand so that you're you're picking up an extra point in conversion rate and you can put a little bit more budget to work, the difference between actually building a brand around a, a mission, you know, the 10,000-pound the gorilla of Gillette is, is overcharging you and building up features to give you a reason to pay more for you know, razors, like that, 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 that whole, like every, you know, every man, every woman's mantra that Dollar Book captured was told through brand development and storytelling and content and creative. And then you take that and all of a sudden you apply all the kind of psychological, behavioral, economic, you know, marketing tactics that help drive conversion, understanding, you know, consumer funnels, you know, certainly understanding targeting and, and optimization and measurement. And it's just a whole different level of scale. So when you, when you look at Dollar Shave Club, that that in four years went from you know zero to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and a billion dollar plus exit before everybody was getting billion dollar exits. Yeah, this is a different time and space. Mm-hmm. You saw that 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 there's more to marketing. There's more to building a business than just getting the tactics right. Yeah, there, there's so much to unpack there, and it's 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 funny because it's almost like. I wouldn't even think of it as channeling a mission as channeling like a deep sense of, of mythology, you know, like think I, about- I love that. I, I think that's great. I, I have, um, I'm about to start rereading Joseph Campbell's, uh, the hero with a thousand faces. You've never read that, that book. Yeah. D- deep lessons in even, yeah. How modern cultures, you know, respond to the power of myth essentially. Right. Cause it, I mean, you think about like, Anyone that shaved, we we were talking about shaving before this, but like um, anybody that shaved before has gone through that that process of like going into a drugstore and just getting gouged and being like mildly annoyed about it, and then walking out and like forgetting about it, and then all of a sudden there's this thing that just channels this like nascent anger in you, this sense of like unfairness, right? It's like deep in your gut, and then they just wrote. It seems like the company wrote that, but I guess what's your take on that? Like what? What did it feel like being involved in that company? Was there a moment when you're like, this is taking off or this is this is struck, this has channeled something in the zeitgeist or like, what, what did it actually feel like being involved? Yeah, the, the day it launched. Mike Dubin spent a lot of time, you know, in deep thinking and preparation. And he's, he's you know, very, very focused, you know, storyteller. And so, um, you know, every piece of content, you know, he wanted to line up with the mission and, and the brand vision that he he had. Lots and lots of preparation. You also have to remember it was at a time when there wasn't this category called viral videos. And so, you know, Dollar Shave Club really created that and taught the world the power of YouTube as a platform and social distribution. 
And so they were able to catch a period where that video launched. And I think you know, later that, that day, it was on YouTube's homepage, right? That was a time when the algorithm kind of was like an all or nothing. Everybody, so everybody um, saw that video and not only did it translate into entertainment, but it actually translated into site visitors and traffic and shut down the site. So just crashed the site. Servers were, you know, we were un- unprepared for the type of volume. His you know, technology team and science brought in every engineer that we had um, on the team to really quickly, you know, all hands on deck, um, spin up more servers. At the same time, it was literally packing, you know, or had like zebra label printers in the aisles of our office and, and all the fulfillment was, be- it was taking place, you know, by just anyone that was in the office at that time. So it was a, it was like a mad dash to learn about what third-party logistics is all about. It was a mad dash to spin up customer service teams and be able to handle, you know, not lose that wave of, of customer engagement because there was limited product, there was limited bandwidth and server space, et cetera. It, it was like, I mean, they, they could definitely create a movie about the dollar shape of launch. It, 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 was, it was the first time that I had seen what viral really was. Let's talk about that a little bit. Like, how do you how do you feel about virality now? Is it is it even worth thinking about and pursuing? Can it exist now? Like, yeah, what's your take on virality? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and there's two ways to tackle it. There's a way that I like, and then a way that is possible but exhausting and, and painful. And I think that's with most things. So the exhausting and painful way is to try and orchestrate it, right? And I can tell you that at, at Science, as, as the partner that was responsible for growth and marketing across the portfolio, for years, you know, we would have entrepreneurs with ideas show up and say, hey, we want to partner with Science. Can you just create a viral video for us? And I, I would laugh. It's like, oh, sure. Like, l- let me you know, bring up my magic wand. Mike Dubin didn't create that video thinking like, how do I create a viral sensation? He thought, how do I tell a story in a funny, charming, authentic way that mm-hmm. that he thought supported the the mission of the company? And so that's the other way to do it, right? Which is like, social distribution is all algorithmic based. Share functions across the the web, mobile are as easy as ever before. Content can be shared in a blink of an eye. So. Things that do capture, like like you said, the zeitgeist or the moment, whether it's nationally, globally, or within a specific you know segment of you know consumer, absolutely can still go viral. And there are a number of platforms. It's harder because there's more competition for impressions, and those platforms are smarter with how to monetize that virality versus the organic distribution. But look, YouTube is still a beast. Facebook still is a beast. Instagram's you know is is a beast. It's not what it once was, but but it still exists. You know, TikTok is still a platform, is, is you know, an emerging platform that has lots of virality. I, I think that now consumers are savvier than they've been in, in the past, even a decade ago. Um, I think Dollar Shape Club launched in 2011. And back then it was this like confusion of when am I being entertained and when am I being sold to? I think now the typical consumer understands that what influencer marketing is and um, how these how brands use these platforms to sell, they still want to be a part of things that they believe in. So the authenticity of that brand story, whether there's viral boost behind it or paid boost behind it, it ultimately matters. And that's how you build lasting relationships with consumers. But yeah, I mean, I think we see all, all the time, we see products that are capturing virality. It may not be the day where Dollar Shake was the only viral video you know, tapped to a product. But but that just means as as marketers and brands, we have to be more thoughtful. 
Yeah, and it seems just like the frequency of mass like shared experience is uh, so much more seldom than than it was in those days, right? Like you could talk to anybody and they would know the, the Dollar Shave Club video, but not the same for most memes and like most things that go around these days, I guess. Probably more segmented, more niche and, and more flash in the pan because of the algorithms, right? Things yeah. come and go fast. Yeah, you know, Dollar Shave Club, I think for two years that video was trending in every social, you know, platform. It was being covered by mainstream media. You know, Mike was getting requested speaking engagements at every major, you know, university's marketing department. It had a lot less competition. And I think that that ties back to like the, the problem that we talked about trying to solve for now, which is even in the in the world of paid media on social platforms, there's so much competition that it's very hard to capture that type of impact today, just because you're fighting with so many other brands and savvy marketers for those same impressions. Right. Kind of an environment of scarcity. And it seems like because of that, people are just exhausted, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's a, uh, I, I mean, at least I feel this subjectively that there's less novelty to social media and, you know, to digital communications writ large, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the media format has changed. I, I, you know, I certainly remember thinking about short form video and short term storytelling, you know, years and years ago. And it does seem like, you know, Snap was on the forefront of that. And then certainly TikTok and then, you know, Facebook having all the other good ideas out there and putting its might and power behind it um, has, you know, created shorter attention spans. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. I, I struggle. I mean, I took Facebook off my phone years ago and haven't put it back on. I took Instagram off, but then I put it back on. Me too. <laughs> and I find myself sometimes not being able to turn off my brain and laying in bed and and like literally counting down like, like as I'm watching like Instagram reels or yeah, and just be like, I'll give myself 10 more. And I'll be yeah. like, oh, well, I counted up. Now I count down. And, and I just can't like get off of it. And there's a lot of great content produced out there as part of it. I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't addictive. It's not just right. the media that's addictive. It's that there's like really funny, great or inspiring content. It's just by the time you're done with a, a real session or TikTok session, you've literally seen a thousand disparate, unique pieces of content. Yeah. And you probably can't remember one of them. Well, I also just feel like there's at least for me personally, and that's obviously extremely anecdotal, like there's less sharing, there's less of this sort of magic, you know, of like, this is hilarious and you have to see it sort of vibe. It's like drinking salt water almost now, at least for me. Well, it's just, it's a flash in the pan, right? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a, it's a, it, it does give you, it gives you that like, like micro dose of dopamine. And it's just like yeah. that dog was funny or that person falling off a bike was funny or, you know, yeah. that person running a prank was funny and then you know and then you move on yeah exactly and i do want to bring this back to to posty in a second but just to kind of like bookend um the the dollar shave club story how did the exit come about i mean was it a situation where it's like as soon as there's this massive success there was like a target from the unilevers of the world to acquire something like this and that was always like on the horizon or was there a moment when it made sense or like how how did the how did that come about yeah, you'd have to, you know, if you wanted like the, the full details, you'd have to talk with Mike or Kevin, who's GM over there, Adam was the CMO. They would have a bit more nuance from the close, but close outside at that point. 
My recollection is that Mike had a year or two earlier had conversations and built a relationship with Unilever and he wasn't interested in selling. And I don't know if they were interested in buying or not, but they were certainly poking around and that's just smart business, right? Like you, if you're grabbing attention, you have conversations with people that have been there, done that before, you know, you have that type of exposure. You have to be careful not to share your trade secrets, but absolutely you capitalize on on that time and space and the ability to build those those type of relationships. And so, you know, a couple of years later, again, and, and this is from recollection and not being in the driver's seat at that point, it was pretty much an unsolicited offer. And yeah. it was at a time and a magnitude where it caught the team's attention and made sense to take it very seriously. And they spent a lot of time at the highest level executive table with Unilever understanding what an acquisition would look like, what that would mean for the future of the business, what how would, how would that look operationally. And I don't know if everybody, probably many people don't know this, but but Mike Dubin stayed on for many years after. He, mm-hmm. you know, he cared a lot about you know, that, the brand that he built and the company that he built. He cared a lot about making sure that the acquisition that you know Unilever paid a pretty penny for, you know, exceeded the value. It was only you know the last few years that that Mike you know eventually transitioned out, and so again that that whole story was really textbook, authentic, organic. They didn't hire bankers and go shop the deal. You yeah. know, came to them. It's every entrepreneur's dream. It, it yeah. really was. Yeah, that that's great. It must have been exciting to be a part of it. And to, to bring this back to Posty, and I think you talked a lot about the importance of building a business around a mission. How do you think about that at Posty now? Like, is there a defined mission that you have? And if so, like how did that come about? For sure. I mean, look, at the at the end of the day, our we get up every day and regardless of when, whether you're on the operations team or the demand gen team or our marketing team or customer success team or our engineering team or data science team, or you're an agency working with us, we care about one thing, which is bring our knowledge and the continued learnings that, that we have in, in this space, in this business to build the absolute industry-leading technology to give advertisers the ability to grow their businesses in a controlled way with a little less stress. Like that, that is our mission. And, and the reason that's really important is when you think about the things that cause stress in an organization, it's, are we onboarding enough new customers? Are those customers sticking with us as a retention? Are they growing and scaling? Are they finding success? Are they happy with the service we're providing? Those are the things that, that yeah, I think the outputs that keep us up at night as entrepreneurs or people that care about the businesses that we're involved in. And you can't always control those, right? Yeah. But what you can control is is the inputs. And it's something that we're starting to spend a lot more time on these days. Instead of being so fixated on how many new logos did we onboard? You know, what does our net dollar retention look like? What does our logo retention look like? It's really the things of are we doing everything in our power to give marketers the tools that they need to be successful, helping educate them, helping service them on the platform. And if we do that and do that really well, and it, it's not easy and you know, it's a constant learning cycle, then the results will speak for themselves. And I, I can tell you, you know, one of the things that has always stuck with me, you know, I started this business with Jonathan Nettenrip and, and we're true partners in the business together. 
you know, we balance each other out and, and, and there are moments of entrepreneurialism where you're on top of the world. And then there's you know, two minutes later, someone, you know, pulls a chair out from under you and it feels like the world is you know, crashing in on you. It's just, it's a very, you know, up and down profession, but yeah, there are moments where I'm down, like I'm feeling depressed and, and I'm, I'm really bummed out about a client or even a campaign that single campaign that they ran, you know, isn't delivering what you know they expected or what we thought. I'm worried about potentially losing the client, et cetera. And, um, and Jonathan always kind of, you know, looks at me, he's like, look, we have one mission in this business, which is to, to provide technology that makes this channel performant for the broadest set of advertisers. And if we're doing that, then we have a great business. If we're not doing that, then we don't, and we should be doing something different. And everything in between is you know, generally stuff we can't control. And I just think that that's a really yeah. powerful way to think about things. I, I'm not going to you know, over-exaggerate and say that I am 100% mindful of that all the time, but in the very lowest moments of, of running a business, that, that piece of advice does come you know, floating back into my brain. And, and it does help me, you know, help remind me that, hey, instead of sitting here obsessing over what's going wrong, Let's let's figure out how to either fix it or let's realize the isolated use case. We we still did everything right, and that's what matters. The inputs that we can control. Yeah, I really like that, and it's it's almost exactly the same as what I've I've really been enjoying in this book on Amazon called Working Backwards that just came out pretty recently, I think. But that's one of their core values or principles is just like focusing just on the inputs pretty much. And it's hard. I think it takes a lot of discipline and it sounds like it's it's something that's, that's top of mind for you guys. And another thing that I really liked about your homepage, and I think it makes sense given your background in the consumer space, is that you've taken such a great like consumer marketing approach to a, a high level, you know, B2B product or service, which is like you're going to run direct mail with a click of a button, just like you would with digital ads. It's like, it's super simple. It makes sense. It's, you can wrap your head around it and not to chew my own horn, but you know, I run a marketing podcast. I've been in the B2B space a while. I understand technology and approaches and generally how this stuff works relatively sophisticated eight out of 10 B2B sites. I have no idea what, what the company does, you know, after, after reading for a good amount of time. So kudos on that. And I'd love to get your take on it and just kind of how you think about marketing posty. Well, first of all, th- thank you. That's awesome. We don't hear that enough. We, there's so many things we we stress out on and focus on and get feedback on. And that's not one that comes up often. So I will share that with our marketing team for sure and make sure that they listen to this podcast. Um, it'll make them feel great. Sure. But it does, it, it, it put a huge smile on my face because it, it wasn't accidental. I mean, look, we're marketers by trade. Like that's what we do. Um, and, and so that's how we ended up in this business. Like I shared earlier, it was really important to us not to make this boring. And part of that was just for our own entertainment. We wanted to enjoy the ride and all aspects of it. And, you know, every B2B website looks the same and is using the same template and um, uses the same words. We just don't want to present that way, especially in direct mail that has this long history. There's, you know, a sea of you know, traditional providers that all kind of do things the same way and haven't evolved in decades. And, and so we we really wanted to cut through the noise. And one of the things that you didn't mention about the site, but that everybody seems to love are this cast of characters and animations that we use. So there's like, you'll see at least for, for right now, it's all basically sea animals in space as a theme. 
and it just came from working with a creative illustrator that that we empowered you just like stop thinking about what the traditional way to present this content would be like let's just have fun with it and so we have yeah you know, octopuses in space and we have sea monkeys in space and we have fish with space you know deep sea you know diving space you know and space helmets on narwhals with uh you know in space and we will get asked like what is this these characters represent and they represent smiles and yeah. engagement you know yeah there could be we've made up little stories in mythology over time internally but they didn't start that way it, it just made us happy so I, i'm wearing one of our shirts right now um it's great you know to uh, a narwhal wearing a space helmet communicating with a satellite yeah if you could tell me what that means like that would be <laughs> amazing doesn't matter when I wear this shirt and I walk into like the trendiest coffee shops, I get complimented by the barista, which like, as far as I'm concerned, is like, like yeah. if there's anyone that knows like culture and style, it's, you know, baristas at, you know, at expensive coffee shops. Especially in Austin. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Especially in Austin. It happened in, in Venice, California okay. as well. Same, same. Uh, in Santa Monica. And, and so the, to me, that's winning. It's it's putting a smile on our team's face. It's putting a smile on our client's face. They all want shirts. They all want coffee mugs and Yetis and whatever um, with these characters. That is a core piece of who we are as a culture, which is we're doing this with fun. We're trying. We're tackling something that you know you'd expect to be very different than the way that we're approaching it, and it's refreshing. And yeah. to me, that's that just makes building this business even that much more fun. That's great. Um, and I think in the interest of, of time, I think maybe we'll skip over overrated, underrated and instead use that time. Can you talk a little bit about how you're working with agencies and just kind of, you know, how, how you're partnering with people and that kind of thing? Well, we work with a, a full range of agencies from, you know, the small consultancies with, you know, a couple key people and a, and a small brand roster. And I think, you know, those agencies are really interested in what we're doing because they have the opportunity to add value to their client roster by bringing them channels that they aren't currently working with or that they're just kind of stuck with. And, and you know, we're unlocking the full potential of direct mail. We also work with the biggest agency holding companies in the world. And those relationships are very integrated where we're actually integrating our technology stack with their internal technology stacks. We're helping them educate their clients on the addressability of direct mail and how direct mail should be thought of as an integrated part of their entire addressable strategy. So it should be thought of hand in hand with their email strategy and their SMS strategy and their programmatic media strategy and their paid social strategies um, and, and really everywhere in between. You know, every agency is unique. You, know, you take the five big agency holding companies, they all you know think and behave differently. It's why they have different client sets at different times. And and it's you know, it's been really interesting for us to kind of watch them evolve. You know, see, yeah, you know, their executive teams, you know, eyes you know, get really wide when they think they realize the potential that direct mail can provide above and beyond what what maybe some of the the sub um, companies within their their holding company are currently doing. And then the, we're also engaging with agencies that are that are solely digital because you don't have to think about direct mail as paper and ink with post. You think about it as you know, data in, data out. You think about it as execution from you know, integration with your CR, you know, CRM or CDPs. Yeah, really the full stack. It's been really enjoyable to, to engage really up and down that stack. Yeah, that, that's great. And I think we could do, you know, a whole nother hour on 
copywriting on like data on you know in the weeds tactics when it comes to direct mail and and hopefully uh we'll, we'll have the, the chance to do that but Dave, how can people um follow what you're up to get in touch all that good stuff for sure um uh, well I, as you said go check out the octopuses and the narwhals and space sea monkeys on uh on posty.com so that that's just p-o-s-t-i-e.com and i'm sure it'll be in the show notes we work on publishing lots of content around case studies and white papers, share a bunch of data on the channel. So that we're always working on, on trying to make that you know, content accessible and understandable. It's an easy way to reach our sales team as well if you're interested in, in a demo or just doing kind of a discovery session, learning what the channel can provide. If you have a question directly for me, best channel to reach me at is, is through LinkedIn. And it's um, David L. Fink is my handle. Or if you just search Dave Fink and Posty, you'll find me and, and I'm a big user of messaging tool built in there. Awesome. Dave, thank you so much for your time, man. We'll get all that linked up and uh, yeah, let's do it again. Sounds good. I'd love to. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.